Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 179, The Jewish Polymath. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. There's a saying that goes, if you have a project that just needs to get done, give it to a busy person. Our guest today, David Zvi Kalman, is a busy person like that, who always seems to have the time to get another project done, even though he's got a lot of projects going on all the time. He is the owner of Printacraft Press, the publisher of a number of interesting and important recent Jewish books, including A Rainbow Thread, Queer Jewish Texts from the First Century to 1969, whose author, Noam Siena, we interviewed recently, and a book called The Illustrated Pirkei Vote, The Book of Jewish Wisdom in Graphic Novel Form. David Zvi Kalman is also the executive director of Jewish Public Media, a podcast network that includes the podcast The Joy of Text, a podcast about Judaism and sexuality co-hosted by an Orthodox rabbi and a sex therapist. And with all this work, he had time to get his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in the past year, where he studied the history of technology and Islamic jurisprudence. He has recently taken up a new position as a fellow in residence at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. We're excited to dive into a conversation about all of these projects and to continue our exploration about this idea of the, quote, regular Jew, the person who's not trained as a Jewish professional, at least not in the old sense of being a rabbi or a cantor or a Jewish educator in the more traditional sense, but somebody who has Jewish interests and says, I'm going to go out and figure out a way to create something new to get these interests met and to hopefully help others connect to what I'm interested in. Our guest today, David Zvi Kalman, really fits that bill, and we're excited to get into the conversation. David Zvi Kalman, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. Well, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the idea of the, quote, regular Jew, the person who's not a rabbi or otherwise authorized as a Jewish professional who we want to see going off and doing interesting projects to explore their interest in Judaism and to push things in various different directions. And and I think that you're kind of the uh, fantasy version of that, who has done multiple explorations in different directions of that. You run a publishing company, you run a podcast network, you just got a PhD in the subject of Jewish time. And I would love to start by understanding a little bit about how this happened. What is your personal story that has resulted in you having what we fondly and uh, affirmatively call the chutzpah to to do so many interesting projects in, in Judaism? So... The short answer is, I don't know, and I hope someone would tell me. <laughs> the truth of the matter is that I'm a little bit worried to think about that question too much, in part because I'm worried that if I think about it, I will come up with a good answer, and that will actually limit the things that I end up doing. Um, but um, the most direct inspiration for me was probably my dad, uh, who I think has more jobs than anybody I ever know. I've, and he's, he's had more jobs than anybody I've ever met. He worked for most of his life as a freelance photographer, worked in a company that makes solar panels. He's also worked as a rabbit breeder. He's also worked um, on leading tours to Petra in Jordan. Uh, he's also run websites that 
uh, sell religious stock art. Um, and growing up, he just kind of started one of these ventures every few years and it didn't seem weird or unusual that he would start it or that it would fail or that it would succeed. But there's always just been this portfolio. And so it never seems strange to be pursuing a very large number of things at the same time, which may or may not have any relation to each other as long as they were fun and they seemed to be worth doing um, and as long as people enjoyed them. But I think, you know, in terms of choosing projects, one of the major motivations for me is seeing what other people are excited about and figuring out how to motivate them. So some of the projects which I pursue, I am kind of coming up with the substance and uh, either pursuing it on my own or having other people in supporting roles. But um, in a good number of the projects that I pursue, I'm the one with the supporting role. So as an example, in the publishing house, a big part of my role as a publisher is finding people who are creating interesting projects and figuring out how to push them to make that project better to the point where it's publishable um, or to uh, be able to pick out the projects which are already successful and kind of take them to the next level. So I'll give you an example. So Noam Sienna, who I know you've had on the podcast in the past, uh, wrote um, A Rainbow Thread, which started out for him as um, a kind of pet project, which he was pursuing over a large number of years. Uh, it came to my attention first when he taught a course at the National Chavara Center on that subject. It seemed like the kind of project which, if it was expanded a little bit, could become a textbook, an anthology, which did not exist yet. And so it seemed like a great opportunity to do that. So part of it is just kind of seeing who is out there um, and seeing what the possibilities are. And I think that's a big motivation for me. So talk us through some of the specs a little bit since we've got uh, multiple projects in place. Um, what what came first and um, which, of, which of your core projects came first and how? Like how did they come together and were they simultaneous? Was uh, Print to Craft first? Was... Jewish public media first. Um, how did that all evolve? When I was in the middle of my uh, grad school process after my first son was born, and I felt like, oh, this is real now. Like, there's people to take care of. I need to think about the trajectory of my life. And so I made the very poor decision to start a nonprofit and then a for profit company in the space of a year, which uh, undoubtedly delayed the time it took me to graduate, but at the same time was. Um, incredibly fulfilling and I you know I'm I think I'm glad I did that but I think just thinking about what I wanted to do uh, beyond the dissertation um, and thinking about the both the, the job market um, in Jewish studies which as you may know is not great um, and thinking about my prospects there and then also thinking about where it's possible to have influence it seemed like there was space to um, create organizations which incorporated scholarly content, but at the same time directed that content to a wider audience, um, either through books or through podcasts or, you know, through some other uh, medium. So those two entities have ended up being kind of major vehicles for me. Um, but outside of those two companies, so Jewish Public Media, which is a nonprofit podcast company, and then Printercraft, which is a for-profit publishing company, um, there's also been opportunities here and there to start uh, different websites and publish different articles um, and pursue um, all kinds of other ventures in between. 
So I'm really I'm really excited to expand into this, you know, the set of questions around having multiple projects. So I think that it's as I think about like the world we live in, the society we live in, especially in the United States. For me, this is like among we've had lots of all we've had all sorts of funky guests on this show. Um, but in certain senses, I think this is among the more like countercultural things. Like it's so, it's such a bedrock principle that like, ah, you sort of go to college and you like have your thing, like your one thing that you are. And that at cocktail parties, people can ask you like, what do you do? And the answer is one role that you do that is one set of projects that you have for an organization of some kind. And I mean, I'm a, I'm like, my short question is like, what do you answer when people ask you, like, what do you do? Like, I'm curious how you, how you go about that, but also like, what can we learn? What can we think about when it comes to the idea that people would not just have one project that they're constantly working on that like your father, like you, um, you'd be sort of trying lots of different things over the course of one's career. So in terms of what I say I do, I've in the past said that I'm a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, which is correct. Basically, I just obfuscate. Um, and in the fall, <laughs> I'll start saying that um, I'm a fellow in residence at the Shalom Hartman Institute. So I try not to make it um, a big thing. People don't like long lists in those <laughs> situations. But I would say the reason that I'm interested in pursuing these many projects is in part out of a sense of what the future of Jewish American life is supposed to look like, and in part thinking about it as being a project which is at the beginning and not at the end. I think so. Part of the interest in kind of pursuing one venture is you have this kind of narrative around life where you kind of start out life by pursuing all different kinds of things. I'm thinking of, um, you know, um, Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials as like a good metaphor for this, where in the book, um, like little kids have these creatures that go around with them and the creatures change shape, um, you know, very easily. And then as the kids get older, these creatures have more difficulty changing shape until they finally settle down into one single shape. So I think like that's a pretty standard narrative of what life looks like. And it's not just what life looks like, but also the life of organizations, life of nations, life of religions, that there's a kind of calcification that takes place over time where you kind of stop pursuing multiple ventures. And instead you kind of focus on the one thing that you're passionate about or is reliable or stable. Um, that's, I, I think that's fine. But um, from a Jewish perspective, I think especially from an American Jewish perspective, there's more to look forward to. Um, when I look at the American Jewish landscape today, I definitely see the problems. I mean, I'm sure you've talked about the problems at great length. But there's also a lot of opportunity. Uh, there's a lot of really bright people. There's a lot of uh, changes in the way that people are thinking about Judaism in terms of politics, in terms of culture. Um, and there is great opportunity there to uh, use those changing perspectives to create new kinds of art, new kinds of books, new kinds of literature. Um, and that's all just incredibly exciting. So let's, uh, let's explore that with regard to the publishing work. I'll tell you, the first time that I heard of your company, Printercraft, I don't remember which book it was that, that I had heard about, but I was like, oh, this is so cool. A non-Jewish uh, publishing company is publishing Jewish <laughs> books. That's really neat. You know, and then I kind of looked at it and realized that everything was a Jewish book, and it therefore 
uh, punctured this assumption that we have that Jewish projects have to have Jewish names, which I'd love to get into a little. I know there's a story behind the name, but I'm curious about how you also thought about that question. But then also in terms of the books that you've decided to publish, or in some cases, I think, to republish and bring to America from Israel. Can you talk a little bit about what your philosophy has been in terms of of deciding what books to publish? What is the problem that you're trying to solve or the opportunity that you're trying to seize in terms of uh, American Judaism and the landscape of publishing? So the name Printocraft is the same name as a company that my grandfather uh, who just passed away earlier this year at the age of 100, a company that he founded, which um, published, I, I should say it didn't publish, but it customized products for weddings and bar mitzvahs. So, you know, you need a matchbook, which has your son's name on it. Great. You need a keeper, which has your, you know, your daughter and your son-in-law's name on it. Here you go. So among the things that he created was uh, ventures. So, you know, small prayer books, uh, that are used at weddings and are often also used at uh, Shabbat tables. Um, and so because the first book that this publishing house produced was also a venture, it felt like it made sense to adopt the name. But beyond that, um, I think it's important to kind of find heritage, to find tradition. And even though this is a publishing house that publishes books that, you know, my grandfather probably would not have published, it still seemed important to ground it in something. So in terms of how um, we decide what to publish, in terms of how I decide what to publish, books seem to have a staying power, even though alternative digital projects are definitely available. And I anticipate that they'll be around for quite a while into the future. And one thing that I am consciously trying to do in the printer craft books is to make people have an experience of awe or a sense of reverence about an object which they normally would not have been able to have outside of the context of a really gifted teacher, really gifted rabbi, some kind of educational experience, which is available to some people. You know, some people, they learn the Talmud and they have a great time because the Talmud combined with the teacher who's giving it to them makes it wonderful. But a lot of people don't have that opportunity in part because there's just sheer, the sheer geography of American Jewish life makes it difficult for people to connect as much as they would want to. Lots and lots of Jews are isolated from those kinds of teachers. So part of this is just to have books where you can hold the book and feel like, wow, like I'm holding something different. I read recently about the Benjamin Franklin effect, which is where you ask someone a favor that actually makes them feel more fondly towards you. And I think there's something similar happening in printer craft books where you kind of actually demand the reader pay a different kind of attention to the book. And in return, the reader actually feels more fondly towards the book in exchange. So that's the reason why in the venture, for example, there's all kinds of weird things going on which are intentionally not explained or require like a little bit more um, effort to figure out. Or there's like secrets, like there's parts of the venture which I haven't told anybody why they're there and I don't plan on telling anybody why they're there. Um, so those are all features that are placed intentionally to give people the sense of reverence. Um, and in a way it's a kind of, it's a taking advantage of what books can offer, especially in an era when so much of life has become digital. There's another piece I want to name. So you don't publish that many books. And I say that with only admiration and praise. Uh, when I when you go to the website of Printicraft, um, it says, who are we? 
a tiny publishing house based in Philadelphia. We sell just 10 books. And that's awesome. So I I, want to poke it, A, why that is so prominently placed on your website. I have guesses, but I'm, I'm curious why. But I also want to say, this isn't a question. I want to say that for me, and this reminds me of when we spoke with, um, uh, Fred Price a long time ago, who he has a Jewish publishing organization called Fig Tree Books and also only publishes a couple books max a year. And, and when I see that anyone has chosen to publish one thing out of like everything they could publish, I think to myself, well, that's probably a really good thing. And it's almost independent of what that thing is. Like, like uh, it's, it tells me like, I gotta, I gotta pay attention to this. Um, so when, when, you know, Noam Sienna's book, I, I was, I was going to be drawn to Noam Sienna's book for all sorts of reasons. But like, even if hypothetically I weren't, I, I think I would have noticed, wow, this is the only, this is what you chose to devote your time to when you could have chosen a variety of other projects. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. Why is it that you only publish a small number of books and how does, and what does that mean for that, for, for the process of making each book a published work? So I think the fact that you're drawn to that one on the website is kind of evidence that the strategy of, of promoting the fact that we are a small publishing house actually is effective. Um, publishing houses for most people, I think can feel kind of like these nebulous things, you know, you're aware of the author. You're not always aware of who is publishing it, especially for larger publishers by advertising the fact that we only publish a small number of books. It makes people more aware of our presence. And that is part of the point of, of advertising that as to why it's a small number of books. Part of it is pragmatic because I had a dissertation to write. And so this was not my full-time job. It is still not my full-time job, although um, I'm going to be continuing to work on it into the future. Um, so part of it is that. Part of it is that uh, just strategically, um, because this was something I was doing on the side, it made sense to publish books that are perennials. And so, you know, it's more difficult to publish a novel because you spend a lot of time and then you get a season out of it and then interest wanes. Whereas when you publish an anthology, you publish an edition of Pirkei Avot, you publish a Haggadah, those books, people love those books. And so that just from a business perspective made more sense. Going into the future, one thing I expect is from now on, we'll probably, I will probably take more risks on publishing books that are not perennials, but are still interesting and um, are books that people would not otherwise publish. The last reason is that this is a for-profit business. Um, there's nobody underwriting printer craft books, which means that when a book comes out, it's because I think it will achieve market success. Um, and that's important, not just in terms of the bottom line of the company that like it's a profitable company. It's important that I think it is actually from a values perspective, important to make books that people really want to buy and are not books that some wealthy donor decides should exist in the world, but a book that actual American Jews and American non-Jews feel is important to exist in the world. Um, I can say that in producing the books, an entity that is in my mind frequently is Artscroll, where Artscroll being a company that, that also started out producing a Megillah, um, a, I think an artistic Megillah of some kind. I don't think I've actually seen it. Um, and kind of expanded out pretty dramatically into all kinds of 
prayer books and Bibles and all kinds of different products. Um, Art Scroll is popular both within the Orthodox community, Art Scroll itself is an Orthodox press, but also outside of it in part just because it is convenient. Um, and convenience is not to be underrated in terms of the, the thing that people care about most when they are making book purchases. They want a book that is, you know, that is easy on the eyes, a book that they can, they can actually understand, in part because uh, Jewish ideas are often intimidated enough as it is, you want something that's going to help you along the way. It's been important to match Artscroll, not just, and I'd say, you know, obviously Artscroll is still bigger than us, but it's been important to match not just the ideology, meaning to say, not to say, okay, Artscroll has the Orthodox book, here is a queer friendly book. And because it's queer friendly, you're going to buy it, but also to match them in terms of convenience to kind of have the aesthetics um, to go along with it. You know, it's often not enough to just do what Orthodox Jews are doing and then just modify that little bit and say, okay, well, you know, we have what the Orthodox Jews have. And then we added another word that, that allows for women or allows for queer Jews. You have to also provide a little bit more. Um, you have to do something that Orthodox Jews are not doing. And so I think like in producing the venture and producing uh, the Illustrated Pirkei vote, part of the idea is to both uh, to kind of make an ideological statement, but also make a product that is actually appealing, you know, on its face. And I think the result of that is that as with Art Scroll, printer craft books have been accepted, not just within a, you know, egalitarian spaces, but in all spaces. So when we first came up with the venture, we got orders, bulk orders for it from rabbinical schools from every denomination. So in the spirit of that thread that we brought up before in terms of you wearing many different hats, I want to pivot a little bit, but I think this is going to build because you were just talking about perennials and you were talking about, you know, this genre of books that have a season to them, you know, like the bencher, it has the wedding season that comes around every year. Um, you also have your Haggadah, which is associated with Passover each year. Um, perennials, that's a time term. And you just wrote a dissertation. You just finished up a dissertation on conceptions of Jewish timekeeping. So I wanted to sort of open the floor for that conversation. Tell us a little bit about your dissertation um, and what we can learn about time and like maybe, and open to you either way, um, to the extent that this ties into conversations about publishing, that would be great. But also, you know, just talk to us about your dissertation. What can we learn? One thing that uh, struck me in doing my dissertation work, which is on the history of the Jewish reception of timekeeping technology from the Bible to the 20th century. So that's sundials and the water clocks and mechanical clocks and all these different kinds of timekeeping devices is that for much of Jewish history and for much of world history, the way people keep track of time has nothing to do with these artificial constructs. Um, and sometimes people are actually quite resentful when those constructs are introduced. So the, the word hour comes from the Greek hora started out not with any kind of technical meaning of like some fraction of the day, but just to mean some short period of time. And short could mean like a second. It could mean a season. It could mean any number of things. Um, and then when Greece starts to get sundials and water clocks, it gains this new technical meaning. And as it does, people in Greece sometimes act out their resentment at needing to keep time and have a schedule that abides by this artificial device. So you have like people in Greek plays saying like, I want to eat now. I don't want to eat when it's nine hours into the day. 
So like the ninth hour of the day, like three quarters of the way until sunset, I, I'm hungry now. Um, and actually that, that idea of obeying the rhythms of your stomach as opposed to obeying the rhythms of the clock shows up repeatedly, both in Greek literature and then also it shows up in Jewish literature around the question of um, how long are you supposed to wait between eating meat and eating milk, where the Talmud knows that you're not supposed to eat them together, doesn't give a precise definition of how far apart they're supposed to be. And then over time, as uh, clocks become more mainstream, as they start showing up in European city squares, and then in people's homes, people start to become clearer and clearer about exactly how long must be waited between eating meat and eating milk. So I think in that you really see a development that is connected to the technology. So in terms of like, how is it connected to the previous, the printer craft stuff and um, the other ventures, I would say it's a little bit circuitous. In printer craft, I'm interested in the physical books. Physical books are kind of material culture. Material culture involves technology. Clocks are technology. Um, that's probably the chain. Uh, so it's it's a little bit of a walk, but the interest in both is recognizing that there is more to Jewish life than words and text. Uh, there is also there are also actual objects out there, and paying attention to those objects can reveal things that text themselves would not uh, reveal. So in the dissertation, part of it is showing that the way that Jews talk about time, the way they think about their own ability to keep track of time as opposed to God's ability to keep track of time, uh, that changes when the time-keeping devices get better. Um, and it doesn't just happen once. It happens many times because time-keeping technology is uh, not just a single invention. It's something which took place over literally a couple thousand years. And most technologies work like that, that it's not just this kind of like one moment, but there's these many smaller moments at least until the Industrial Revolution. After the Industrial Revolution, you do have these kind of massive moments like the invention of the telegram, the invention of the telephone, things like that. Uh, before, before that, it's a little bit different. Well, it's interesting to think about God, whether God cares about waiting exactly six hours or three hours, you know, just because we've invented clocks and that earlier God didn't care about that so precisely. And what's the mindset that says, you know, as our technology changes, so do God's preferences. You know, I, I often used to think that uh, on Yom Kippur, that it was odd that God was writing us in the book of life, you know, wouldn't it be a spreadsheet in our time? But, <laughs> but more profoundly, I, I think there's this question about the impact of technology on the thing itself. And that obviously, I think it's obvious to everybody that when printing became widespread, that that sparked the Protestant Reformation, you know, that there, the technology has had a long history of having impact on, on religious life. It's interesting to me to reflect on what you're describing, that when the technology for timekeeping changed, the, the religious community seems to have kind of gone along with the technology, whereas often when technology changes, there's actually a resistance to to what that technology might be might be pushing us to go in terms of a direction and and I'm wondering can we reflect on that in terms of books and new media in the sense that when uh, scrolls were introduced that changed Judaism a lot when books were introduced that changed Judaism a lot and now that new media is is uh, being developed I, I'm wondering can you reflect on the ways in which that that could change Judaism and to the extent that that would be welcomed by a more 
religiously observant community like yours versus resisted by it? And, and how might we better think about questions of that nature? So I would say, in general, Judaism has been remarkably neutral to technological change, which is saying something given that Jews, for most of Jewish history, were not the ones making the technologies, um, either because they did not have political power and technological change is often associated with, you know, being in the employ of the local ruler. And also because in some places, like in Europe, in medieval Europe, for example, Jews were not... Um, allowed in certain manufacturing professions. And it's often manufacturers who are developing technologies, um, often incrementally, but that's where kind of the, the work was happening. So despite all that, Jews have been remarkably neutral to technological change. And because of that, every time a new technology comes in, you get very, very interesting Jewish responses to it, which don't respond to the technology as technology, but respond to it in terms of what the technology does, or how it interacts with other elements of life. And so that I think that's true for, for books, it's true for other kinds of media. Um, going back to what you said about, you know, does God care about, you know, what time I pray? Does God care that I pray the morning prayer by a certain hour? Um, one thing that's gonna be important in the 21st century in thinking around the way that Judaism responds to technological change is it's hard to, come up with a response to each individual breakthrough because there are just so many nowadays. But what you can do is think about the way in which Judaism tends to respond to different kinds of technological breakthroughs. So as an example, when technologies show up that allow us greater degrees of accuracy in various fields. So for example, being able to keep track of time better or having microscopes and being able to see things clearer that results in this choice that needs to be made. Do you then go back to old rabbinic text and say, oh yeah, well, obviously God expected us or the rabbis expected us to keep track of this thing to an infinite degree of accuracy. And now that we have greater tools, we should just keep to that. Or was the original degree of accuracy like that was the stopping point and we should just stick to that. The most important example of this is probably uh, around microscopes where um, there's a bunch of interesting uh, Jewish legal opinions response at the end of the 19th century around do things that you can see, but only microscopically, do those have Jewish legal significance? The one that I love the most is there's a rabbi, I believe, in India who responds very angrily to his community members because they write to him and say, there are these people going around examining our etrogim and saying that they have these tiny defects. So an etrog is a citron, like it's a kind of like a lemon. And the rule is that when you use it on Sukkot, where it's, you know, you're supposed to use one every Sukkot uh, during the holiday, it has to be perfect. It can't have any nicks or scratches in it. So the question is, well, if it has nicks and scratches, but they're microscopic, do I have to care about those? And this rabbi's like, what are you talking about? How could you possibly care about this? If you use microscopes, then basically you would destroy all of Jewish law. Like there's no end of trouble that you can cause. So I think that's a kind of like paradigmatic example. It also shows another thing that happens with accuracy, which is you have a role for rabbis to play in kind of saying, stop, do not, <laughs> do not pursue this further. Um, this level of accuracy is sufficient. Don't go beyond that. And it actually requires rabbis who feel themselves to have a significant degree of authority in order to do that. And if you don't have those rabbis, then when new accuracy technologies come in, 
you do have a tendency towards kind of, you know, more stringent positions because no one's there to say, well, you know, what we were doing before was good enough. So accuracy, it's, it's a kind of good example of a kind of trend that you can identify within Jewish law. Um, and it, that one will undoubtedly continue into the future. There are two ideas that are swimming around in my head having to do with this idea of technological change and, and more accurate measuring the microscope thing. And I'm, I'm curious both about your reflections on them and your sort of historical knowledge about them. You know, one is that it seems like in the case that you were describing with the etrog in the rabbi from India, that that if you take technology to allow increasingly accurate measures and your reaction to that is to become increasingly concerned with accuracy, then at a certain point, and I don't think it's dramatic and sudden, I think it happens slowly and at different points for different people, you get people you know, like me who say, this has gone too far. You know, this is crazy. I, 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 I can't be under this system. And you get the counter reaction, which is either to leave it or to have a strong fight within for essentially some version of of uh, you know not not using this technology in this way or or however we might put it. So while the temptation is to sort of ride along with the technology and take seriously the fact that we can get more accurate towards what we think it's supposed to be accurate about, uh, but there's a, a flip side to that. And the other question that I have is that there's certain things like, for example, the gender binary, which it feels like where we are in terms of technology today is that our increasing ability to measure and understand is helping us actually see that what they thought were these accurate measures in the past are actually not accurate, but in the sense that they're actually more messy, not more neat. And it feels like, for some reason, there is more resistance to that kind of technological evolution and, and change from within religious systems. And yet, as I learned from Noam Siena's book, you know, the Talmud talks a lot about certain uh, non-conforming type gender categories. But it's interesting to think about how our better technology and our better understanding of science today actually makes what were presented in the Talmud as sort of exceptions, actually something more like the rule. And yet that doesn't seem like it would be a particularly welcomed point of view in, in many uh, observant circles. So I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of uh, understanding, deeper understanding about these things. Yeah. So for both of those realms, I think one thing that's very important to do is to treat people as primary texts. And by that, I mean, if a person is interested in Jewish life and they want to engage with Jewish law, they want to engage with Jewish practice in various ways, then take that seriously in whatever they are trying to do. Um, I think this is particularly important to use an example in terms of the development of rituals um, among same-sex couples around marriage um, and around having children, where, you know, there are simple modifications that one could use from the uh, from hetero marriages that, you know, just, you know, swap in different gendered nouns, things like that. But I'm sure that there are more interesting, in fact, I know there are more interesting uh, changes that can be made. And the way that those changes will get made is not just by a kind of cold analysis of the text, but by people who are living those lives, um, trying different things out and seeing what works and what does not work. And over time, developing consensus or developing a number, a number of different options. But 
I am so interested to see what happens in the next 10, 15, 20 years um, as people start experimenting with Jewish rituals in various ways. And I think like, just to go back to something I said at the beginning, one thing that's important is just to make sure that people engaging in those uh, developments have a sense that what they are doing is not just some kind of random aberration or some like attempt to make something work, which was not really intended for them, but is actually like the central process of Jewish history, that it is this experimentation, which will yield new kinds of rituals and kind of like whenever possible, like making it clear that those developments are central and are um, key to the way in which Jewish ideas progress is a really important task for, I think, anybody involved in Jewish leadership. So there's something really refreshing to me about how you use the word technology, because so often I find that when people talk about technology, they're just sort of talking about screens. Um, in 2019, uh, technology, technology just seems to refer to the general set of things like computers, cell phones, et cetera, that are new-ish and um, in one way or another interesting or problematic or scary or all of the above to people. But the way you're using technology and looking back at technology in history, um, you know, you're identifying scrolls as technologies and um, all of these clocks, all of these examples of how um, something that we think of today as simple or ancient is still a technology. So I, I wanted to thank you for that. But it also, it, it got me in the mindset um, for all the problematic reasons I'm naming of that other form of technology, which is the screens, is the digital world, et cetera. And so I wanted to ask you, as one of our only guests that has sort of thought deeply about podcasting as a technology. Um, I was wondering if you could sort of poke at it for a second, get get meta with our listeners and with us and ask like, what is podcasting serving a role to do for people? And how is it sort of, how does it have potential for unleashing new ideas for the Jewish future? So the question of how to package content has always been a major question and anxiety within Jewish history. Podcasting uh, opens up new avenues that I think were not present previously. Uh, and I'm excited about them. And I know you guys are excited about them as well. One thing that I think podcasting does very well is it um, conveys emotional content. It can also convey informational content. There was a long tradition of people gaining information by listening to the radio um, and now by listening to podcasts that I think um, has primed people to continue doing just that. And there's lots of podcasts which are pretty dense in terms of information content. But the podcasts that I think succeed best in the medium are those which expose people to the human voice and not just text. And I think there's something about hearing another person speak that gives you a sense of connection to that person. Um, there's a word that I heard recently. I'm trying to remember who coined it. Um, um, but the word is a kind of a parasocial relationship. That is a relationship that you have, but it's one directional. You have a relationship with Ira Glass, but Ira Glass does not have a relationship with you. But you can form that relationship because podcasts create this sense of intimacy where it's just you in your headphones, you know, uh, listening, and there's nobody else there. Um, I think there's also just great opportunities in terms of storytelling. Um, and there, this is an area where I think that while Jewish podcasting has advanced tremendously in the last decade, there is still a great opportunity. Um, 
I think Israel's story, the podcast has done a good job, at least on the Israeli front. But in terms of American Judaism, I don't know that there are podcasts that have really reached the caliber of a serial or any of the kind of serial imitators. There is also, excitingly, you know, for-profit potentials in the Aris area. Podcasting is an industry that generates revenue. And so I hope that somebody can figure out a way to uh, tap into that to tell Jewish stories in ways that are self-supporting. At the same time, I want to be conscious of the fact that podcasting is not, I mean, podcasting has been like, like the kind of frontier for a while now. And I feel like I've been recently made aware of the fact that podcasting is actually not the newest platform. Like people are on YouTube now. Um, and YouTube is a different kind of um, medium for sending out ideas. And that's one where I feel like Jews have really, really not explored that at all. Um, I was really excited about Bim Bam, which was a uh, video platform, uh, had videos on YouTube directed towards kids. Um, I thought it was amazing. I'm very sad that it no longer exists. Um, the thing that I really want to see, and I think, honestly, I am already too old for this, is I want to see some like um, somebody in their early 20s putting out great Jewish ideas in the kind of YouTuber format that has become popular. It has not been done yet. There's really a space for like probably 10 of those people, but I would love to see at least one of those people. You know, if there's someone listening to the podcast, who is that person? I'd love to talk to them about that. So I wanted to ask you about a, a line that I saw on your website where you're talking about your academic work and your academic writing, where you say, I have a policy of public first, which means I try to put out new research in publicly accessible format before it gets put into an academic format. Sometimes there's a lag between the public and academic versions. I'd love to hear you talk about that because one of the things that I've thought about a lot is that it seems that a lot of the really interesting thinking about Judaism that's happening outside of the more traditional spaces is happening in the world of Jewish academia, but often that world seems to be very cut off, very separate from the world of day-to-day -day Jewish practice, in part because academics want it that way. They are often very careful to be clear that they're not involved with Jewish practice, that they're studying Judaism, and they're very nervous about being seen as as Jewish leaders or Jewish professionals in some fashion. And I, and I feel like regular Jews are therefore bereft of some kind of leadership that could otherwise be available, which is people that are thinking about Judaism in new, exciting ways, whether that's about the Jewish past or the Jewish future. And and one one solution is to try to have some kind of uh, person, maybe like what we're trying to do on the podcast, try to get in in the in between those two groups and say, how can we translate f from one from the academic world to the world of everyday people? But another option is for uh, Jewish academics to say, hey, we we do want to be involved with that, and we do want to find ways of connecting our ideas to real people in real life. So I'd love for you to, to reflect on that as we uh, get towards our close, because I, it seems to be something that you've uh, built your life and your professional life around. And, and I'd love to hear you reflect on what it might look like if more academics thought that way. Luckily, I think there are lots of academics that think that way. Um, and I would also say that not every academic needs to think that way. There are people who are writing really esoteric work 
and that's important and i'm glad that they're doing that um personally i don't find it satisfying if my work is read by 10 people and nobody else you know the work that i create i want to be read widely and so the academic work that i focus on tends to be work that i believe will have a wider appeal and so you know part of the public first policy is that like the research itself is intended with the public in mind like from conception so it's not for everybody but um i find it very helpful as a motivator um yeah i really really love that like i really really love that so I see this as almost like a a travesty. Like, like I, I think it's deeply sad that there is incredible work going on um, in the realm. Not by the way, we're not, I'm not only thinking of Jewish studies here. Jewish studies is the most like obvious place to find work that is deeply relevant to shaping the Jewish present and future. But it's not the only place. There's all sorts of ways in which other areas of the humanities, and even occasionally, you know. The sciences can, I think, directly impact the way we practice Judaism and the way we shape institutions. So that's one piece is that I'm like deeply sad that there's these rich Trevor Troves of, I guess, information, but also like transformational potential that are living in academic journals and in conferences that a very, very small portion of people access. And then there's the other side of it, which is I'm sad that in Jewish institutions, there doesn't seem to be a recognition of this travesty. There doesn't seem to be a sense that like, oh my gosh, we are impoverished by not following what's going on in the Association for Jewish Studies. Uh, by the way, I'm going to like randomly plug the, the the Association for Jewish Studies has a new podcast, um, relatively new podcast that is really worth listening to. Um, and I will put it in the show notes. Um I, I want people who are in the Jewish world to feel like an urgency that like, wow, if I'm not on a regular basis, like revisiting what is shifting and how we understand Jewish history and Jewish sociology, like what are the ramifications of that for my work? And, and you know, I could also go into how like, I, I wish that in the Jewish studies world to, to make it on that direction too, like, I wish that there was sometimes more of a sort of bridge where people in Jewish studies are sort of following what's going on in the Jewish institutional world, because there's a gap in that direction too. So basically, I'd love to hear a little bit more on this because there are people that are looking to do, that are looking to have their work have a big impact. But I'm not sure there's, I'm not sure that that's bearing the level of fruit that I would like it to. So I think there's a few barriers here. Uh, some of the barriers come from the academy itself. You know, academic training does not usually train people to write for the public. And it also does not always train people to pick out problems based on how important they are. It gives people training on picking out problems based on how unsolved they are, which sometimes is the same thing and sometimes is not. Part of it is about public interest not directly factoring into the way that committees decide um, what grad students should be focusing on, the way that programs are constructed. So I think like, so part of it comes from inside the academy. I'm also a big fan of the new AJS podcast, and I hope that they put out many more episodes because I think efforts like that really can bridge the gap between uh, what is available currently and what is available in the future. I think the fact that academic books are extremely expensive and are basically not intended for mortals is not <laughs> helping anybody. There isn't an attempt 
to make these books accessible to people who are not specialists. And that keeps some of this information out of reach. But my sense is that there really have been efforts um, among grad students and recent grads in the last few years to change this. Two websites that I would highlight are the Talmud blog, which I think, uh, although I think it's less active now, did a very good job of looking at what was current in Talmud research, uh, the dissertations that people were doing, interesting, important conferences, kind of summarizing those conferences, um, and Ancient Jew Review. I think it's ancientjewreview.com, which is doing a similar project for um, ancient Jewish studies. Uh, those areas, I think, are getting more interest than maybe medieval Jewish studies or early modern Jewish studies, which I think have not received the kind of popularization treatment that they should have. But, um, but there, are, there, are, there are changes afoot. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, we've we've covered a lot of territory here, and um, I really look forward to following all of the projects that we've talked about with you today, and I'm sure the new ones that you'll be that you'll be pioneering in the in the next few years or decades. So, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys, and thanks so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. Um, we don't always make this reminder, but I wanted to shout out to our show notes because this episode in particular, we made a lot of references to websites and podcasts and et cetera that might be interesting to you. And we really love when folks use our show notes on our website to access those other resources. And just do that at judaismunbound.com. You can see the show notes for this episode and all of our past episodes if you are interested. To close out, we want to encourage you to be in touch with us as we always do. It means so much to us when we hear from our listeners. And here are the various different options for how you can do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can check out our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that at JudaismUnbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.